Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Ryan Cooper. And I'm Alexi the Greek. Today we have a special episode for you all with academic, scholar, man about town, Justin Jock, author most recently of Revolutionary Mathematics, Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism. Uh, yeah, this is a, a super interesting book um, that, you know, it's one of those episodes, Ryan, you tell me what you think. It, it, it's It's got such obvious, practical, timely uh, applications, you know, with the chat GPT conversations, with all algorithms running our lives in so many ways. And and yet we can get really nerdy and we do get really nerdy, uh, whether it's about the history and nature of uh, statistics and probability, different types of statistics, whether it's about the metaphysical underpinnings of different understandings of statistics or of uh, what what statistics uh, assumes about knowledge and about reality. Big words like ontology are thrown about, but also real practical uh, understandings for class struggle and for uh, diagnosing how capitalism is functioning in many ways like it always has, but in new manifestations today, uh, given the advent of uh, AI algorithms and um, the way that that Bayesian statistics especially – um, has influenced the way that capital appropriates technology and these algorithms and so forth. And so it's a wide ranging conversation, really interesting. Uh, yeah. So I think it'll be a good one for everyone to enjoy. Yeah. You know, what, what I learned from, uh, reading this book is that, you know, number one, the Bayesian bros, the Nate Silvers, the Maddie Glaciuses <laughs> right. of the world, that like their understanding of their own ideology right. is flawed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And also that Bayesian statistics is not an inherently reactionary project. It just happens to be, you know, the most useful type of thinking about probability that has come to be uh you know, hegemonic within like capitalism writ large, basically just because it, it, it works better. It's more useful. It's very useful. It's very, yeah. well, we've said it at the same time, uh, we, uh, three, two, one jinx. Is there a thing that, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, and so, you know, um, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty technical book, I guess I would say, it, you know, there, there's, there's some, there's, there's some, some beef in there, some, some heavy steak, um, but it's not, you know, you don't need to like understand. You don't need a big background in statistics no. or anything. No. And and if you're a if you're a theory nerd, you're gonna like the you know a lot of Marx and Adorno and and various uh, philosophical references for sure. Right, and that's the other thing I would say that uh, you know statistics it, you you can't divorce it from you know political economy and philosophy. Um, writ large, uh, it, it, it is not uh, an objective science. I would say there is no such thing as an objective science. And, um, you know, it, it, it matters, you know, it, you can't just learn like some stuff about numbers and, and get to a received truth about the world yes. that will tell yes. you, you know, the magic formula for how to make everything better. Uh, That's right. Th- th- all these things have it's politics all the way down and yes. and so yes, absolutely. Uh, um 
it's really, you know, it's really worth digging into this stuff to 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 try to figure out, you know, both uh, the technical details of how stuff like chat GPT works, but also the underlying assumptions for, you know, the the um, procedures that uh, produce stuff like chat GPT and stable diffusion and all the other AI stuff that produce, you know, pictures of Donald Trump being arrested or whatever. Um, so yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a good one. I think you'll enjoy it. And even though you can't see any of us cause it's a podcast, you'll enjoy it more. If you know that Justin has a tremendous beard, you should just know that he does. I'm jealous. You know, I have, uh, I have unlike, uh, certain other members of the podcast, a pathetic, uh, you know, incel, uh, patch beard, it, you know, the, 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 <laughs> I would not do well as a Robinson Crusoe stranded on an island. Um, but you know, I'm not jealous in the slightest. And I, I just, I celebrate the fact that other people are more genetically well endowed than me. So anyway, let's, let's stop talking about facial hair and get on to our interview as soon as I talk about first, uh, yes. housekeeping items. Um, our podcast, as you may know, sponsored by the American Prospect Magazine. So if you subscribe on our Patreon at the $10 a month tier, uh, you'll get a free digital subscription to the website, as well as our bonus episodes. If, if you subscribe at $5 a month, you'll get, uh, the bonus episodes. Um, otherwise also, also the $10, uh, you know, what's it called? Lieutenant. Patreon yes. category besides the free digital American prospect. If you want the print edition as well, which is very nice, very nice uh, print edition. True. Uh, you get a, a heavily discounted, uh, you know, version of that. That's right. And our most recent, uh, print edition, which is coming out in about a week, uh, is all about how economic models are a bunch of bullshit. Um, <laughs> there we go. We Timely. Got, we got Elizabeth Warren. We got Joe Stiglitz in there. Um, and numerous other folks. So it's, it's really good. You know, I just finished uh, proofing for typos and everything. So, um, did you wait, 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 did you, did you remind, uh, good old Joseph Stiglitz about when, when I went with you and, and you interviewed him in Philly years ago? Remember I was, I was just standing next to you awkwardly as you interviewed him and he was a nice guy. I did not edit that article, but I'm sure he remembers okay. and cherishes that memory absolutely but anyway but, but between between us and all the listeners he threw some shade at krugman just that's just between all of us don't <laughs> spread that but yeah nobody nobody tell nobody nobody mentioned that to paul krugman who definitely listens to this podcast anyway <laughs> let's get into our interview with justin jock right now so uh justin uh jock am i pronouncing that correctly yep Oh dang! So that means I have to pronounce something else wrong uh, in the in the episode, as per yeah. our contract. Um, you know, it's it's a so bit like no one no one ever gets it right. It happened once. I was like at TSA, and the guy got it right, and I got like so panicked. I was like, "What? What's going on?" <laughs> you, you know about me? You've been investigating. Yeah, <laughs> about to be bundled off to Guantanamo. Um, yeah, so so your your book Revolutionary Mathematics it's 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 uh sort of centrally about statistics uh seems to me uh ignorant scribbler that I am. Um but you know my it was curious to me because my background is in chemistry. 
uh, academically. I, I, that's what I studied in undergrad. It's been many years. I've forgotten like 97% of everything I ever learned in school. But I do recall learning, as you call it, a frequentist uh, statistics in like statistical thermodynamics, uh, in organic chemistry, when you're talking about like T tests and whatnot, maybe listeners have heard of this sort of thing, uh, um, you know, Gaussian distributions and whatnot. And Bayesian statistics is a sort of different approach that I kind of like, you don't really learn about that in science class, uh, or at least you didn't when I was in school back in, you know, 20,000 BC. Um, and you learn about it in the Twitter fights, in the Twitters is where you learn. Yes. Well, see, that's that's the thing. It's like I had previously like I, I sort of I had like a, you know, sort of half learned uh, understanding of Bayesian statistics as saying like you have like an estimate that you make and then you update it with new information, you know, according to this algebraic formula. But it was also used by some of the most obnoxious people online, like Nate Silver and uh, Matt Iglesias, and people who use the word priors a lot, like libertarians, like that's like a sort of shibboleth for libertarians is priors. And I was like, oh, God, if you say priors to me, like I'm just not going to listen to what you're It's you're like a PTSD me. response that he has. Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. Well, it's good we're on yeah, Zoom and so- you can't, can't punch me for it. but no i think you know like what your what your book uh showed me is that like no there's actually a lot of intellectual meat in in the the bayesian approach and that the frequentist approach you know like like there's there there's some there's a, a lot of philosophical dispute in there that i think like scientists you know chemists don't give a shit about like it's does it work? You know, that they, they're not interested in the philosophical underpinnings of, of anything, you know, um, for the most part, I don't know, you know, hashtag not all chemists, but, um, so can, can you start off by telling us, you know, what is the difference between frequentist and, uh, Bayesian statistics? Give us a gloss on that. Sure. Yeah. Well, I can give you the, maybe I'll give you the short answer first, and then we can, can talk a little bit more about the, about the history a little bit later. Um, but basically, the sort of the frequentist understanding of probability is that they are invested in probability being an objective fact. And so the way they get to probability being an objective fact is they say that it's basically the long run frequency of, of some you know, system or some sample that you're taking. And so you can think about this, you know, you flip a head, you flip a, a coin 100 times, if it lands heads 50 50 of those times, then the probability of heads is 50%. So in a, in a really sort of uh, rigorous frequentist understanding of probability, you can't assign a probability to a single flip. It has to be this sort of this, this long run. Um, and then the kind of the, the weird thing is, is how you sort of end up doing hypothesis testing, like you were talking about t-tests uh, and these sorts of things. And the way you basically do it is, is, is sort of backwards when you actually kind of, I think, say it out loud. It's that you gather all your data, you know, and you might be interested in, let's say you have two coins and you want to know if they're, you know, if they both have the same probability of heads, one might be fair and the other one might not be. And so you, you gather all your data and then you imagine a world in which there's no difference between the coins. And then you ask, what is the probability of getting the data that I got from this imaginary world where there is no difference? Um, and then that's the that's the p value that I imagine some people have heard of. It's the it's the probability of seeing the data that you saw in an imaginary world where there is no difference. So in in that way, if the p value is really really low, 
then you assume that the two things actually are different, that the p-value isn't actually a, a measure of the probability of the difference. Um, and so the Bayesian approach, instead of seeing it as this sort of this objective, uh, long-run frequency, measure it uses it as a measure of belief. So essentially, it's it's like because you don't know something. So it's it's basically you know the probability that like I think it's going to rain tomorrow. Um, and this is where where priors come in, because essentially you have a, a prior probability distribution, what you think, you know, the likelihood of, of something is. And then as you get new new data, you update your priors uh, as you learn, uh, learn more about the world. Yeah. Yeah. So that like that, that's a, you know, a, a fairly straightforward, I think, understanding, you know, and, and I, I think that. Uh, you know, even for a scientist, Bayesian probability is probably a lot more how they actually approach uh, intellectual questions. Um, you know, you know, like do vaccines work? Uh, you know, the the I remember reading a lot of articles when the mRNA vaccines were first coming out, where there are all these scientists who are going like, well, we're doing these randomly controlled trials that will give us a statistical significance. But like, I'm virtually certain that this uh, is going to work based on my previous understanding of vaccines in general and also the design of this particular vaccine. And lo and behold, after they did the trials, um, you know, it, it, it turned out, yes, it does work. It, it works really well. Uh, you know, and that maybe in fact caused a lot of, you know, delays, possibly, you know, uh, several months in the rollout of the vaccine. Um, but, you know, regardless of, whether there might be a different way to like handle that sort of a question. Like, can you dig into the sort of ontological uh, uh, difference here between the frequentist approach and the, the Bayesian approach? Like, like what are, what, are, what sort of underlying philosophical assumptions are, are revealed by the different, um, you know, methodologies there? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. And, and I think maybe before I get into that, it, it's worth saying that, you know, one of the, I think, problems that, that are afflicting the sciences these days, uh, you know, and, and you hear, maybe you've heard of the replication crises in some sciences, they, you know, they do these studies, especially psychology has been hit really hard. And then they try to replicate them and they're not, they're not replicating. Um, and part of the, part of the problem is that people do frequentist statistics and then they interpret the results in a Bayesian way. So they take that p value and they interpret it as though it's the probability that there is actually difference, you know, a difference between these two groups or between, uh, between the two coins. And so, you know, in terms of the, the sort of ontological difference, we can, I think we can kind of go back and maybe I think, you know, you can talk about the ontological difference, but you can also talk about it as a, as a kind of a political difference. There are some, some different political commitments that come through essentially in the, in the you know, ontological or, or metaphysical understanding of, of probability. And I think, you know, an important place to, to start is by, by making it abundantly clear that like there is no such thing as probability, right? And maybe maybe in quantum mechanics there is, but you know if if I flip a coin, it either lands on heads or tails. It doesn't land on you know on on fifty percent heads, fifty percent tails. Um, so, so things happen where they don't happen. Um, and so probability really is you know regardless of if you think about it in a frequentist uh, framework or a Bayesian framework, it is this sort of metaphysical supplement to the world. It's this kind of imaginary thing that we've created. Um, 
essentially to deal with uncertainty, right? It's it's a it's a product of us not knowing things about the world. If you you know if you flipped a coin and, and presumably you knew uh, the totality of the system and the air currents and, and all of these things, uh, you could determine exactly uh, exactly how it how it landed. Um, but so so frequentist statistics, and maybe it's helpful to get a little bit into the history here, uh, starts at the, the kind of the, uh, the interwar period uh, in the early 20th century by this guy named Ronald Fisher. Um, and he started as, a, as an agricultural researcher. And, and so in a lot of ways, I think you can see the, the early understanding of frequentism as, you know, really based on understanding sort of group level difference. So he, uh, you know, is, is thinking about how you tell whether one fertilizer is better than the other. Um, but of course, there's random variation in, you know, in seeds and all these other things. And so you might get one field that the plants grow, grow bigger and one where they grow smaller. Uh, and, and the question is, how do you tell whether or not it's actually based, uh, based on the fertilizer? Um, and, so, and so this gets back to what I was, was saying before, that basically the kind of the system that you've set up is you, you get all of your data, you imagine a world where um, there's no difference between, let's say, the fertilizer, and and then you calculate the probability of observing the data that you did that you know one of the sets of crops grew uh, grew higher um, than the other. And I think it's worth worth mentioning, uh, and I talk sort of at length about this in, in the book, but that uh, Ronald Fisher was actually an, an avowed eugenicist. So even after World War II, when a lot of scientists uh, recanted their commitments to eugenics, uh, he was still still steadfast and actually like dissented from this UN statement on uh, on race and, and science. Um, and I think you know I, I don't want to make like uh, too strong of a connection because it's possible it's it's incidental, but I think you can see. You know, at least some shared commitments between this idea of, of science being about group level difference uh, in, in agriculture and, and also sort of his commitment to eugenics and, and racism. Um, but leaving that sort of aside for the, the moment, there's th this other problem with the Fisherian understanding of frequentism. And that is that it's really a, a sort of conservative, and I mean this in a methodological sense, understanding of science, right? Because if you can't actually say, if you can't actually assign a probability to a hypothesis or to an event, you end up sort of with this kind of like free floating, like data suggesting that, you know, there is or is not difference. Um, and, and he sort of, he really says actually that there's, there should only be a null hypothesis. That is that there's no difference between the things and you gather evidence against the null hypothesis, but you can never completely reject it. And so then uh, these guys, Jersey Naaman and Egon Pearson came along and they, um, they really sort of start, they're excited about what Fisher's doing. Um, but they realize how limited it is. And so they sort of have this idea that like, oh, we can actually calculate the costs of being wrong. And we can then, um, you know, it's not just uh, this sort of this kind of abstract idea of being right or wrong. Uh, we can try to be right enough that we can be profitable uh, is essentially what it comes down to uh, for uh, for. Um, Naaman and Pearson. And then this really gets picked up by, uh, by the Bayesianists, um, especially the, like this guy, Leonard Savage, um, who, who sort of kind of rekindled the, the Bayesian flame in the, the sort of post-World War II era, um, and really sort of took it to, to science being a question not of, of uh, things being true or not, but things being valuable and being uh, sort of worthwhile. And so uh, you actually get where 
one of the issues with Bayesian statistics is that, right, if probability is completely subjective, then um, how do you say, you know, if I say there's a 75% chance of it raining tomorrow, uh, and Alexia says it's a 25% chance and it rains, you know, we're both right. We both said there was a probability of rain. Um, and so you can kind of make up, as long as you don't say 100% or 0%, you can make up uh, whatever you want. And it turns and this out this is what Nate Silver says. No matter no matter what the election results are, this is the kind of thing that Nate Silver says. So I didn't say for sure what would happen. I just you know, and so no matter what, he can say, well, that outcome was just the the smaller percentage chance that happened, right? Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so you can't even determine whether one you know probability is better better than another. Um, and so it turns out actually one of the really good justifications for Bayesian statistics and the probability calculus, if you accept it as subjective is that you can derive essentially all the laws of probability from betting contracts, from trying to avoid uh, what's known as a Dutch book, having a Dutch book made against you, which is a, a gambling situation where no matter what happens, you lose money. Um, and so trying to avoid a Dutch book, you can, can get all of the laws of probability. And so I think, you know, in this sort of this deep epistemological shift, we get this, this, this movement that, that sort of initially happens in frequentism, but then, then really strengthens in Bayesian statistics from understanding probability and statistics as this sort of this thing that asymptotically approaches the truth to actually this sort of this much more kind of economic thing plugged into to, to value and the production of value, um, where probability really becomes uh, this way to know what to do rather than what to say. This is sort of the language that Leonard Savage uses. Yeah, and this tracks a couple of interesting philosophical um, contrasts, right? Like, so if we think about, uh, obviously we're going to get into how this sets up capitalism says, Oh, this is something that's useful. <laughs> we'll appropriate this for our, our ends. Right. Um, but, but of course, like in philosophy, the idea of ends or purposes or telos, you know, going back to the ancient Greek, uh, that lent a normative lens of like the way things are designed is how they should be. And so there is this inseparability between what is good or what should be done and, and, and truth or reality. Right. And, and, and so here we have this kind of frequentist, like there's this objective reality we're discovering maybe in a, in a certain kind of way. And then over here, well, no, 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 you know, the Bayesians are like, that's not what's going on. We're, we're doing things that are useful. Uh, but then in philosophy, right, that the kind of there's a, a turn from this, you know, transcendental knowledge of reality to this kind of, uh, well, we can't know that, but we can kind of, um, you know, shape norms and shape behavior. And, and we, you know, we can, knowledge is useful towards, uh, creating reality in, in a kind of way. Like knowledge, knowledge production is, is kind of akin to shaping the world as we want it to be. And so now we get into something really interesting, like how uh, this this genealogy that you've kind of traced uh, in the book um, leads to uh, teaching us something about how capitalism is engaged at, or how statistics are in, are appropriated for algorithms in service of creating reality, creating knowledge. And there are both dangers and opportunities. Like it's, this is revolutionary mathematics we're talking about here. So the, we, we need to, to engage in a kind of uh, understanding of the epistemology and ontology that you've discussed here uh, as leftists to see uh, the opportunities um, to combat the abuses of power by capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah, that's great. And I think it, it really gets to uh, maybe to something, Ryan, you were talking about like the kind of uh, sometimes I call them like Bayes bros, the sort of like the libertarian, uh, you know, people who are like really into it. And I think you can you can really draw a very sort of strong um, 
at least kind of structural uh, analogy between the way that capital functions and the way that that Bayesian statistics function, right? Because you know, there's a way, and and this is exactly what we hear from libertarians, right? Like they have the, they kind of like ontologize the market, and the market becomes this sort of this this thing of this this moment of truth, and you know, and and right the the way that the market addresses us is basically to say, well, you can believe whatever you want. It doesn't matter, you know, like you, you do whatever, you do whatever you want. But at the end of the day, like if you want to eat, you have to, you have to sell your labor, you have to engage in this process. And I think that there's a, there's a certain analogy to the way in which sort of Bayesian statistics has been, been taken up, right? And it's basically that, well, you think whatever you want about probability, but if you want to, you know, be able to, to predict the, whatever Bitcoin's going to do or, or these kinds of things that you really have to approach things in this, this sort of uh, kind of almost like cartoonish version of, of Bayesian statistics where, right. Like there's this uh, what's it called? Le- uh, Less wrong. I think was this blog. I don't know if it's still around, but it was, there was really a, a sort of a, a hub of these people who were trying to apply Bayesian statistics to their lives in this very kind of normative uh, sort of way. So, right, there's this this uh, reactionary libertarian way that you can understand, you know, you discover the laws of capital, you discover the laws of probability, and then you you try to tell people how they're supposed to live as a result of that. Um, but, you know, but then I think the, the leftist response is to say, well, these things are, they're socially constructed, um, not, you know, not necessarily like, I'm not saying that the probability is necessarily socially constructed, but the ways in which we interact with capital and interact with the world are their social decisions that then sort of take on this objective veneer that we have to respond to. You know, and that's why I think, you know, you get you get Marx spending so much time describing how capitalism works. Right. It's not it's not like Marx doesn't just write the Communist Manifesto in in this kind of like left socialist perspective where he says, all right, let's get rid of capitalism. But he's very committed to understanding, understanding how it works and and where the sort of decisions are being made and and where, uh, you know, and one of the things I talk about a lot in the book is objectification, the way in which these sort of social processes confront us as objective. And I think that's exactly what you see with, with Bayesian statistics and the you know one of the 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 points i'm trying to make in the book is not like not to say oh bayesian statistics is this like bad bourgeois science that we should get rid of i think it's actually like a really exciting discovery and what it ultimately discovers is that knowledge is always produced in relation to political economy that you can't you know you can't like just like cut knowledge out of political economy fix it and then shove it back in um, and I think that's what we see with a lot of the discourse around disinformation, right? That these these sort of these crises of of truth and, like you were saying, the creation of new realities um, are, I think, at their core, crises of capital. And and so the the sort of the fantasy that you can just like cut them out of capital, fix you know the problem of disinformation. I mean, look at everything that Elon Musk has done done with Twitter, like there's, there's no way you can, can just sort of fix it on its own and, and save dealing with uh, capital for, for another day. Well, what are some examples of the objectification? So people have some, some concrete things that are going now that we could talk about. Uh, yeah, just to, just to con- concretize uh, s- some of this for people. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I think that there are, 
kind of multiple levels at which this this sort of idea of objectification uh, functions. You know, and, and one of them, I mean, I think you can can think of like uh, you know search engine optimization, right? All of the the sort of like the tricks that people do to try to get you know content noticed and and the ways in which you know we write emails so that they don't get caught by spam filters and stuff. So all of these things are creating these these systems that we have to respond to, or even I mean a, a sort of a pre algorithmic one that I always think of is, is credit scores, right? Like even, you know, like I remember growing up, like, you know, at a certain age, like you're told, okay, get a credit card and spend some money, pay it off just so you're building, you know, credit scores. And so these are the sorts of things, right? These things that like are, are totally made up that, that don't actually exist in the world, but then capital and algorithms sort of lock them in, in, in such a way and just to, just real quickly to, for people like to see the point of how the algorithms and the knowledge production functions uh it's not that the best websites get the best rank it's that the, those uh the algorithm decides and people that that fit the algorithm decides who ends up being being called the best website or whatever and and similarly right um uh the credit score it's not like ontologically we've discovered the people that are more or less trustworthy. It's that whoever gets the score is deemed more trustworthy, whoever gets the low score. And, and that is decided uh, based on algorithms with certain inputs, with certain priors, certain assumptions. And, and to, for, to, to draw on an old example that has nothing to do with algorithms, but like I teach my students that it's not that black people existed or like have an essence and like they were put in the Jim Crow car. It's that whom whoever was put in the Jim Crow car was deemed to be black. Right. Like, like the, the social reality came first in mm-hmm. a way. Right. Yeah. Or the example that, you know, that I always think about was there was a period, uh, in the global war on terror when Obama was president, where they switched the definition of militant essentially to like anyone who was killed by a drone strike um, so it, you know, yeah, like and it, imminent, do you, do you, do you remember when they changed the word imminent to mean not at all imminent, like to mean like <laughs> an imminent strike. And by that, I mean a dangerous thing that could happen at any time. Yeah. 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 Or even, yeah, they, you know, like didn't, uh, who, who was, it was, uh, one of George Bush's people who's, you know, went on that rant about how, like, you know, we're the ones who create reality now while the, fa- the fact-based community is like trying to catch up. Yes. Uh, we're, you know, already creating the, the next reality. Carl Rove. Oh, that's yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the example of credit scores is a good one, I think, Alexi, because that's one where like you can see obvious self-reinforcing dynamics whereby if you get a good credit score, then whenever you go to get some credit from somewhere, you have a lower interest rate and that's going to benefit you economically. And that's going to make it easier for you to uh, keep up with your payments on everything. And Um, the corollary is that people that can't get, you know, that don't have the good credit, they have to take out like the payday loans or they they have like, you know, there's like usury going on and that makes it harder for them to succeed. And it's a, a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I want to I want to talk more about you know you have a lot in the book about like modern day um you know te- technology stuff but it strikes me I just want to ask something that 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 occurred to me just now about uh the pragmatists the american pragmatists like richard rorty uh, uh thomas dewey um that 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 it seems like they there's a similar sort of philosophical approach between like the uh, you know quote unquote objective frequentists and the um 
the the Bayesians have a much more, you know, sort of like rough and ready, does it work approach to uh, probability. Um, you know, maybe this is a little bit of a rabbit hole to get into, but but do, it, is that a, in in your thinking, you know, to, to, to say that like the question of is there an objective reality being kind of a distraction, an unanswerable sort of sort of question for us like embodied human beings. Uh, we can say whether things are true or false empirically, but we can't say like capital T truth like this, is, like sort of metaphysics needs to be put in the garbage and we need to just focus on what works. Um, is there a parallel there? Yeah, I mean, I think that there definitely is. And, you know, and one of the, the things that I found really interesting that I didn't know before I started doing this research was that, like, when when Fisher started writing about frequentism, uh, he was reacting against a sort of an, an older kind of understanding of, of Bayesian statistics. So that was sort of the way that people did it before, uh, you know, uh, starting, I think, with people like Laplace. Um and so there, there really is this moment in, in starting in kind of the 20s uh, where frequentism really is this, this reaction to a, a sort of a kind of a, an agreed upon Bayesianism. Um, and, and yeah, it is this sort of this idea that, that on the one hand, like we can really sort of get at the, at the truth of, of things. There's actually a, a passage, I think I have it in the book, where uh, Fisher just starts like ripping into um, Neyman and Pearson and saying that like, well, maybe in the Soviet Union where they had five-year plans and uh, technocrats and plant managers determining all these things, the purpose of science is really just to like advance technology and build things better. Uh, but, you know, here I'm a, I'm a good, uh, you know, uh, uh, Englishman and uh, the purpose of, of science is, you know, this hubristic thing where I should know as an individual um, and and so yeah, I think in a lot of ways the the break, and you can really see it in in the work of Leonard Savage, but already in in Naaman and Pearson, is this sort of um, yeah, I like this language, this kind of anti metaphysical position where they're really just sort of like you know it's about like it's about what I can know. It's it's based around my sort of lack of knowledge that the the purpose of probability is not really to necessarily know things concretely, but to, to deal with and, and, and navigate a world where I don't know things concretely. And so I, I think, oh, sorry, I was just going to say, you know, so I think that you can, I mean, in, in a very sort of rough way, you can, you can see that uh, Fisher is really this kind of this agricultural approach to, to knowledge production. Naaman and Pearson are really industrialists, like their sort of understanding of, of the cost of being wrong in either direction maps onto, you know, running a steel mill very well. And, and then the sort of modern uh, Bayesian revolution really maps well onto information capital, where you're constantly getting these real time data streams. And actually, that's one thing we haven't talked a, a whole lot about. But one of the, the reasons that Bayesian statistics weren't super popular until recently is also just because it's, it's very uh, computationally expensive. So you have to do a lot of uh, pretty simple, but a lot of calculations over and over again. And, and it becomes very easy when you have sort of cheap com computers. Um, and it works because it can provide a probability to individual events. It's very effective at dealing with sort of live data streams constantly coming in and updating predictions and these kinds of things, like information, information capital. 
maybe we should talk about like chat GPT then to give people a sense for, for yeah. how, cause that's, that's all the rage, right? So, so you can help. I mean, in the book, I think you, you write about artificial neural networks and, uh, we could get into the hidden layers and how that relates to the, to the kind of, uh, ontological questions you're we talking about. But, um, you know, a lot of people are confused precisely around these, these points about truth or usefulness and, and, and the idea that there's like, you know, is chat GPT just, uh, you know, doing a probability of what word comes next. And, 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 and some people are mad because they say, well, that has nothing to do with truth. And maybe that's, that's correct. But, uh, what's, what are your thoughts on, on, on the confusions around this kind of, uh, developing, uh, technology that's, that's, you know, everyone's talking about? Well, tell, tell us, uh, before, before you get to that though, t- tell us, give us a little, uh, summary on how, cause you have in the book, how do these artificial, I'll quote unquote, artificial intelligence, um, neural network things work. I think a lot of people have no idea about that. I only learned this recently, the neural network, the large language model type, like what are they doing? What's, what's the mechanics there? So, yeah. So basically, I mean, there, there are sort of lots of variations on them, but, but basically they're, they're a pretty simple system where you have uh, a set of inputs on one side and, and this could be, you know, uh, any number of things that you're you're inputting into the the data set or into the the model, and then it has a set of outputs on the on the other side, um, and you know you can you can do different things, and then they have layers of essentially neurons on the inside. You know they're just they're computers; they're not actual neurons, and then they're connect they're all sort of connected, so you go from one layer to the next to the next. Um, and basically what you do is you show it a bunch of training data. So data that already has, you know, what should be the, the right answer. Um, and, and I'll be honest, I, I probably need to spend a little bit of time reading about exactly how they have chat GPT set up. Um, but, but presumably it's, it's something like, you know, you have all of this, these, these large language models. And so you can look at everything and, you know, you say, okay, you've got these words in response to, to this sort of topic. And, you know, then the, the training data would be, okay, this is the next word. And then this is the next word. And this is the next word. And so you run it like this. Um, and basically the, the hidden layers on, on the inside of it, um, they have weights that tell you how you sort of add things up to get to the output layer. And as you run more and more training data, you fine tune uh, what those weights are for the training data so that then when it, it sees a new input, it can predict a, a new output that looks as much like the, uh, the training data as possible. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, there, there are all different kinds of things you can do. You can put like loops in these and you can uh, have multiple models feeding into each other. Um, but basically, this is what it is. It's these these neurons with weights that have inputs and then they calculate a, an output. And, and another example, so we'll get back to ChatGPT, but another example in your book of this, correct me if I'm wrong, is like this kind of prediction uh, model can tell you the likely number of pop tarts, like the pop tart sales are going to go up uh, when there's a hurricane or something like that. Right. Like, can you talk about that example? That was so interesting. Oh yeah. yeah. So that was from, uh, from uh, Walmart in, I forget which hurricane it was, but it was in the, in the mid two thousands. Uh, and they started looking at all their sales data, you know, and they determined that like right before a hurricane, 
people bought all the like strawberry, like the sales of strawberry pop tarts uh, went up. You know, and and it is in, so. In the book, I sort of make a kind of a toy model of a, a neural network to predict these things. You know, it's entirely possible that I don't know how Walmart analyzed the data. They might have just done you know some sort of linear regression or, or something much more uh, simple than than that. Um, it's possible. One of the things that people oftentimes use are uh, naive Bayes classifiers, which are basically for you know putting things in in different uh, different kinds of groups based on the the sort of the things that you see. They're oftentimes used for document classification. Um, but there are all of these all of these different different models, and, and actually neural networks, you know, aren't in, in a lot of ways properly Bayesian. They give you a probability at the end. Um, but what I, I think, you know, that that sort of unites all of these and, and makes it helpful to sort of understand uh, Bayesian statistics in order to understand what's going on is this idea that that sort of happens when with the shift from frequentism to Bayesian statistics is that like you can just assign a probability to everything and that and then you pick the one with the highest probability and so this is basically you know what these large language models do is is you have an input and then it just says okay of like of every single word that I could possibly choose, what's the the most you know the highest probability to be like a good a good word that a human would like to hear, um, and you know and then it says okay now I gave you that word what's the probability of the next one so all of these are are based on this you know even if they're not really rigorously Bayesian based on this insight that like you can just assign a probability to everything and pick the one with the highest probability. And so how does that get in? Like, explain how this uh, uh, ties into your 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 thinking about um, you know uh, uh, capitalism and you know s- sort of objective objectification and the misuse of Bayesian statistics or statistics writ large, right? Like we're, like we're seeing these. Uh, AI models being um, rolled out and the rate of progress seems, you know, to me, a complete imbecile to be like quite, quite shocking in many ways, you know, like the, the level of fidelity in a year that, that has, has uh, uh, been improved upon in some of these like image processors is like the stable diffusion and, and whatnot really quite striking. You know, it's like, th- this is a, really quite impressive. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's like, it's, it's sort of being, uh, rolled out in a way that seems, uh, uh, if not irresponsible, but just like totally, uh, unconcerned with any kind of downsides. Like we're just going for it. We're going for it. We're, we're rolling this stuff out. We're going to make it available to everyone. We're going to build it into our business model. And if it blows up the economy or the world or whatever, you know, I mean, you have these kind of implausible sort of like, oh, chat GPT is going to like start nuclear Armageddon somehow. Maybe that won't happen. But like they, wh- whether or not any of these negative outcomes would, would happen, nobody cares who is in charge of this stuff. And um, so like, how does that, you know, influence your, uh, like, how does it tie into your thinking about this? Yeah, that's great. Um, so, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, the kind of the arguments that I really try to make in the book is that, like, if we if we think about Bayesian statistics really being sort of tied to this kind of this market-based epistemology where, you know, one one generates probabilities in order to essentially, like, not get, you know, not get screwed at the horse track. 
Um, if this is, you know, this is where, where this is all coming from. I think what you can really start to see is how much these, these models, the, the algorithms and all of these things, like their primary goal is to generate capital, right? It's to, to figure out how to, to produce capital faster, you know, and, and we could have a discussion about whether or not they're like, uh, directly productive, like Mark says in the, in the fragment on machines in the Grindriza, or if they're, simply things that increase the productivity of, of, of uh, human production. Uh, but even setting that aside, what I think that they're fundamentally trying to do is to, to essentially maximize profit because that's how we uh, you know, measure value, uh, value today. And so one of the examples, just to, to give another example that I talk about in the book, uh, is Project Grayball, which was this, this Uber project where they basically um, – uh, they tried to detect if someone was a government regulator and then they like hit all the rides from them. So, you know, if you stepped out of like city hall or something trying to, uh, you know, regulate, uh, um, Uber, like a, a taxi, then you pull up the app and there, there are no rides there because they know you just got out of city hall and they know what you're, what you're trying to do. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that what these, these algorithms are trying to do, and it goes back to what we were talking about with credit scores is like create worlds where people can make profit. And I think you can even start to understand, you know, chat GPT and precisely the risks that you're talking about that like the, the main sort of product of chat GPT is in some ways, I think it's the hype. It's like, they're trying, it, it started like open AI started as this nonprofit and then very quickly and quietly shifted to a, a business that was, that was for sale and, and could make, uh, make lots of money. And so, you know, I, I think that like, in a lot of ways, precisely what you're saying, the, the reason that like they don't really care about the sort of the downstream effects is because they really just want to produce something that, you know, that can be sold uh, and, and that's, that's worthwhile for someone. So it's kind of like generating its, its own sort of hype cycle. Um, and even I think all the people who are coming up with these like you know, in a way, these sort of like, oh, we're going to destroy the world and, uh, you know, chat GPT is going to take over the nuclear silos and, and start launching them. Like, I think part of that is to just generate, you know, to make it more of an exciting product and something that people feel like they have to um, have to get a handle on. And so I, I think in a lot of ways, the really the really interesting question about chat GPT is is what it's going to do to labor, right, is the question of, of what labor it's ultimately going to going to replace. And, you know, and, and I don't know, we've been through a lot of cycles of, of excitement about AI, you know, even when uh, back in the 50s, right, general AI was supposed to be a decade away. Um, and I don't know, I mean, they are, they are doing some pretty impressive things. But I also wonder if there are, there are some really hard problems up ahead. Uh, that'll be interesting to see when they run into. Well, I want to ask just, and this is because I love how you discuss the inextricability of political economy and, and, and these questions we've been dis discussing, these metaphysical questions, these questions about the, the nature of truth and, and, and what statistics really is, what probability really is. Um, and, and of course, you, you point out and you talked about earlier, AI or, or any of these things will be in service of capitalism if we don't address capitalism, right? So there, there has to be – we have to do the class war there. But you also point out that we can't properly – have a revolution. We can't properly do the class war if we don't understand what your book is about. If we don't have revolutionary mathematics, if we don't understand that side of it as well, right? So, so it's not either or. We have to understand 
um, you know, leftists have to understand how to um, fight both literally in terms of organizing and all that, you know, action stuff. But in terms of the theory and in terms of the the understanding what's going on here in your book, what do you think is uh, what are the pitfalls and what what are lessons we need to really learn both theory and praxis wise? Yeah, no, that's a that's an excellent question and and one that I, I think in a lot of ways I'm still trying to to I think I, I make hints in the book of, of where I think the direction is, but I, I think it's still something uh, really to work through. But you know, one of the things that really interests me is precisely the the ways in which objectification functions, the ways we get locked into these these sorts of these sorts of systems that we we really have a hard time finding our, our way out of. And the ways, you know, if we think about algorithms that we allow them to sort of think for us. So just to give one more example, uh, that, that in a lot of ways really kind of, I think, inspired my approach to this book was this, uh, Midas disaster here in Michigan. So this was, uh, I think it was, uh, 2013. The state of Michigan paid like a million dollars for this. Uh, they called it the Michigan integrated data automation system. It was this like algorithm that was supposed to take care of all this data stuff. And one of the things it did was it detected uh, it detected uh, unemployment insurance fraud. And it turned out it just didn't work and kicked like tens of thousands of people off of unemployment insurance. They had to go and then they had like gotten rid of the, the people who would evaluate this. So there was no one to like, you know, uh, appeal to. And so it took people five, six years to work through the court to get their unemployment insurance back. And like, obviously, you know, you're not on unemployment insurance because you're you're sitting on, you know, tens of thousands of dollars and you can wait five years uh, for the money. So it really, you know, it really uh, was a was a horrible thing. But I think it speaks to the way that that these algorithms. Right. And, and we can think of, you know, one of the things I, I say in the book is that, like, the original machine learning is capitalism, like capitalism is this this system for machine learning uh, and its machines, you know, learning how to manage our affairs. And so I think it's really important to think about the ways in which we let capital and we let algorithms and we let institutions like, you know, credit scores uh, manage our affairs for us. And so, you know, I, I think oftentimes the way that we think about activism is it's kind of fighting sort of just in this kind of this space of, of free choice that we have and, you know, about politics and, and these kind of things. And so I think that the, the task of what I call a revolutionary mathematics isn't actually, you know, it's not like, oh, we need to like invent a new statistics that's not Bayesian statistics, but it's to challenge the, the very things that we're computing and the ways in which we think about, about value and, and the sorts of the systems uh, that we live in. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I've been looking into this uh, AI stuff, like in a, in a, I mean, not a rigorous way, but like actually looking into it, uh, you know, seriously. And it appears to me that the, you know, the, the ideal use case for this type of thing is going to be to help people who already know what they're doing to be more productive at work. Uh, I've seen a lot of stuff from programmers where it's like, oh, you know, I have a lot of like boring rote code that I have to write. And if I can, if I do, if I practice and I prompt the, the chat bot appropriately, it will produce that code for me in seconds. And occasionally it will show me, you know, like it, it, it will give me like a little trick that I didn't know that that was maybe discovered through this sort of semi-mysterious black box process through the neural network that you were talking about before. 
Um, but the key thing is that like you need to have somebody experienced uh, who can tell if the output is garbage or not. And uh, um, it strikes, it, it seems to me like you're sort of, we're sort of like standing at a crossroads with this type of stuff where like, you know, the, the, the capitalists will be like, oh, let's fire everyone. We'll put like Elon Musk will just put chat GPT in charge of writing all the code for Twitter and it will replace, you know, the, the, uh, t- Twitter, uh, icon with the Doge, uh, meme. And, you know, that this is going to increase value or whatever, you know, like, like there, there won't be any sort of controls on it. Whereas, you know, uh, you could think of it, you know, perhaps, you know, maybe I miss, uh, misappropriating your book here, but in a revolutionary mathematics sense to be like, if the workers are in control of this to, to, to be like, you know, uh, this should be about labor saving and that should be harnessed to reduce the amount of work that people have to do. And the nece- like what what remains of the work should be spread out amongst the whole population in the form of like leisure policies so that we have more vacation days and we have a shorter work week or a shorter working day um, so that we have, you know, the same number of, of workers making the same amount of money or more, but they're, uh, you know, have more free time um, thanks to the use of these labor saving technologies. I mean, this goes back to the very beginning of capitalism with, uh, you know, like the improvements in, in spinning and weaving and making steel and all of that type of thing. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a political question, right? Like how, uh, this type of stuff is, is going to be harnessed and for the benefit of, of whom, um, is that kind of your view on this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think that it, it's, and this gets to what Alexi was saying about it, right? Like being both about this sort of, you know, organizing and stuff like those are, I mean, those are organized questions about organized labor and how, you know, we negotiate contracts and who gets, you know, the, the surplus that's created from, from increases in productivity. Um, and, and then ultimately, you know, what it is that we value, right? If we value Elon Musk getting another billion dollars or like, you know, every person getting, a uh, you know, a little bit extra vacation time. And, and so those are, those are right. They're questions of, of value and they're questions of, of politics. Um, but I think it's, it's also maybe even, even there's a, a sort of a deeper level at play here. And I think that there's, there's kind of a risk, right. And in, uh, you know, if it's just about like, okay, we're producing surplus value and it's whether that surplus value is appropriated by workers or appropriated by uh, the bosses, I think that gets us like half of the way there. But we're still, I think, thinking then in, in terms of the same sort of production of, of capitalist value. And, you know, and, and if we sort of think about the, the long history of the, the 20th century, and and I think all of the the new and, and horrific ways that capitalists have figured out how to you know move money around the globe and and hide it and expropriate it um, that I think we have to think deeper too about what we're even calculating when we sort of calculate value, especially as it becomes increasingly uh, automated. And and I don't and I'll be honest, I don't know entirely what that that looks like, but I, I think we have to start opening and, and asking those questions. Um, but exactly what you're saying, I think those are the the sort of the starting questions of you know understanding this in terms of, of production and, and labor and value uh, and who it is who benefits and, and who doesn't. Um, 
And it's it's again what's new here. So so there's a lot of things that are old that are still relevant. Uh, going back to Marx or or even Polanyi, because a lot of what we're saying is is that you got to subordinate the market to democracy, not have the democracy subordinated to the market. Uh, or or a rent in the human condition, talking about we we must think what we are doing, you know, because we're we're we're, we're technology is outstripping our th- our thinking about like the you know the use and what it'll you know. Uh, but to to return to Polanyi for a minute, you know. Well, actually, here, what thinking actually is, is being uh, done for us, as you suggested. Like, like it's not just that we're acting without thinking. It's that what we consider thinking or what we consider knowledge is uh, being done for us in some way, right? It's, that's, that is something newly dangerous, right? Can you, can you say more a bit more about that? And then I want to get to the second enclosure movement that you talk about and, and how that's, yeah. So. Sure. Yeah, I think those two things are, are really related. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think in some ways uh, there definitely is a shift and, and there are new things going on. But I think one of the things that I try to do in, in the book is to show how, how sort of these systems for objectification have always been ways to let things think for us. So, you know, I talk in the book about, about tally sticks as being a, a sort of a really early example of objectification. So this was, uh, in, in medieval times, they would, you know, if, if I loaned you, uh, you know, like a donkey or, you know, whatever, 10 donkeys, uh, we'd make 10 little uh, marks in a stick, break them in half, and we'd each keep half as a, a sort of a receipt. And I think the thing I, I like about this example is, is you can see very clearly that the stick is this object that remembers for us and, and thinks for us. And so, you know, one of the things I, I try to do in the book is to suggest that maybe it's not the, the sort of the structure of objectification per se, or the structure of, of letting things think for us that are, are, is necessarily bad, but it's about who's deciding what's thinking for us and, and what it is that, you know, that is, that is being valued. So I think, you know, there's maybe it's, it's a situation to my mind where it, it's first and foremost, a change in quantity, like the the speed and the the number of things that were you know that were leaving to algorithms, um, you know, like and and this gets back to this idea that capital is the original machine learning, in that like capitalism was trying to you know was sort of making these these kind of decisions for us in a in a sort of uh, post-stone sort of way that capital is the the subject of capitalism that you know sort of decides these things. But then when you get to, to high frequency trading, it's just going so much faster. And and when things go, and I think the bigger problem and, and what happens is just that when things go off the rails, uh, like in this Midas example that I just gave, there's there's so much less infrastructure to try to get them get them back on the rails or to deal with it. And because everything's so deeply interconnected and you know, and, and this is something we all experienced with COVID with sort of just in time manufacturing and warehousing, that like when things fall apart, there's no robustness in the system. Whereas, you know, if if you were in medieval England using your tally sticks and you know and, and all the donkeys died, it would be a problem for you and I, but it wouldn't be the sort of systematic problem that we get, uh, you know, when uh, when Silicon Valley Bank shuts down or something like that. That's uh, that's all the questions I had. Um, do, any last uh, comments or last questions for me, Alexi? Sure. I mean, what, what would you like to end on, Justin? I, I, I want to leave the audience thinking along these same lines about the political project and and what. Um, what kind of, 
what your book orients them to think about with regard to these advancements in, in um, AI and so forth. And, and so I, I wonder, I, I brought up the second enclosure movement um, just, just to give a, a an added sense for like what, what capitalism is taking away from the public and the, and the, the kind of the political creation and appropriation of these tools towards social ends. Um, like, as opposed to the the privatization and enclosure of knowledge production and appropriation for for capitalist ends, like maybe we can end on on some thoughts uh, there. You know what what what's what's kind of um, clarifying for what what's going on right now for people given uh, these advancements. Yeah, no, that's I think that's a great place to end. And and so yeah, maybe I can start. I'll talk a little bit about sort of what I mean by the second enclosure movement, uh, and then we can sort of broaden out out from there. But, you know, one of the, the things sort of in some of the examples we've already talked about, like uh, like uh, Midas and Project Grayball and, and another one in the book is the VW emission scandal, where they like made a piece of software that would detect if a, a diesel car was being tested and then it drastically cut down the emissions uh, so that when you drove it on the real road, it was nice and fast and powerful. But then when when the regulators had it, it was you know, this, uh, just putzing along uh, following environmental regulations. And so I think what we're what we're seeing now as information and data and these models become sort of directly productive um, is that there's a lot of uh, investment in trying to enclose them, to make them proprietary, to make them something that one can can extract value from. And one of the, the sort of the downsides of, of this ability to extract value from data is that it becomes less sort of about, you know, having accurate data and just about having better data than your competitors or the regulators that you're you're fighting against. So it it really sort of I think we get this kind of this this crisis of of information production where it really everything becomes this sort of this arms race and you know you can think about search engine optimization you can think about uh, all of these things you know how horrible Amazon's got even for just like shopping for things because it's just flooded with with spam uh, and everything just becomes this sort of this arms race this conflict over over people trying to extract value uh, and scam other people you know and, and it's sort of a, a it reminds me a little bit of um, uh, Melville's book, The Confidence Man, where all these characters are, are on this like river boat and they're all trying, like you don't know who's scamming whom. Uh, and it really feels like we're, we're kind of living on this, this river boat in a, in a certain sense. And so I think, you know, one of the, the kind of the big takeaways from it is that, you know, we, we hear a lot about misinformation, disinformation, uh, these replication crises in the sciences, uh, maybe even people have heard of p-hacking, where scientists kind of like massage their data a little bit to get more surprising results. And then journalists, you know, publish it, publish kind of lukewarm data, making these sort of these big claims and stuff like that. And I think what, what you can see is that in a lot of ways, these sort of these crises of, of information and of knowledge are fundamentally crises of capitalism. And so I think, you know, one of the, the sort of the places where I think we can take this and, and start thinking about it is by pointing out to those people who are, you know, at least nominally committed to the sciences and, and knowledge and, you know, the um, 
these sort of these these enterprises of, of discovery and and understanding um, that that capital has fundamentally I think split ways with the sciences and that if that you know our, our colleagues in in the sciences are are interested in in addressing the problems that they confront that they have to sort of join us and, and think about them as problems of political economy and not just as as problems of of knowledge production that can sort of be tinkered with and, and dealt with and so it's it's really about I think. You know, and and like I said, I don't know exactly how to do it, but it's about sort of joining, you know, these these kind of these political struggles that maybe we're we're more sort of familiar with, and trying to find the ways in which the the crises of knowledge uh, actually are, are confronting the same the same thing, and and convince our, our colleagues working in that space that you know that they have to uh, to join us uh, in in this sort of this uh, this revolutionary work. Awesome. Scientists of the world unite. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. yeah, you know, awesome. I mean, you look at the right now, uh, you know, um, the uh, production of COVID vaccines and the number of conservative radio hosts who have died of COVID because they wouldn't take the vaccine. Uh, you know, like the, 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 Things are not lining up in terms of even just political uh, self-interest and, you know, the the state of scientific knowledge. Um, but anyway, the uh, Justin uh, Jock, the book is called Revolutionary Mathematics. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, it's got a good subtitle. Don't forget the subtitle. Oh. Artificial Intelligence, Statistics, and the Logic of Capitalism. He always forgets the subtitle. I told you, I had to I had to mess up something. Um, <laughs> that's the rules. But anyway, uh, thanks for coming on the show, and thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode. Thanks so much for having me.